of very God. He is of the same essence as the Father, and omnipotence is being expressed by the Spirit of God who lives in you and has come to abide forever. And now the, the glorification of him to whom be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus unto all the generations forever and ever. Amen. That's the literal of the Greek. Now, my English paraphrase, New American Standard, smooths that out. But I think it's better to just take it um, uh, plainly. To, to him, to this omnipotent God who's working in us, be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus. So the church is here to glorify God and Jesus Christ is glorifying his father. That's John 17, for one example, unto all the generations. That's what we're here to do forever and ever. And that is really the best answer to the world. The world doesn't want to hear. Guys, it's not about us. It's about him. We want to amass glory to ourselves. That's our tendency in the fall. That's how we're, we're born in, in sin. And we just think it's about us. And everyone around us thinks that we really think it's about us, but they know better because they really know that, well, it's about them. And that's the problem. We're just self-centered. When you find an altruistic person, they tend to say, well, it makes me feel good to help. It's about me, right? We always do this. All right. So what's the, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to glorify God. When you do it, believers, listen to me. When you glorify God, you are fulfilling your purpose. When you work in the design that God had for you, there's nothing like it. There's no feeling like it, like knowing you're getting it right when you're doing, when you're functioning according to design. When you get your car back from the shop <laughs> and whatever it was that you brought it into the shop for, you know, you had to, they tell you when you bring the car and what's it doing? Well, it's making this noise. Can you make the noise? I'd really rather not. No, but I really can't know unless you make the noise. So it's making this kind of squeaky, woogity, 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 woogity. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Hey, come here guys. Hey, I need you to hear this noise that the car's making. You know, our mechanics never do this to us, but, um. <laughs> but, but you get your car back and you get it on the road and you kind of put on the accelerator a little bit and it doesn't do that anymore. It's smooth. It works like it's supposed to. Oh, that's so great. It's such a relief. It's so awesome. That's what it's like in part when you figure out you're not here for you, you're here for God. You need to glorify him. When you, when you choose to be that, as I told the children, when we started, start your day and say, God, use me for you. Let this day be about you. When you start your day this way, you're going to be on the right track for what your life is really about. Until we wake up to that idea and um, you need to wake up to it every day, you're really spinning your wheels. Enough of that illustration. This is the conclusion of the first half of Ephesians chapters one through three. And now let's get into the God-honoring practices of the church. The God-honoring practices of the church in Ephesians chapter four. The neatest thing about Ephesians, and Mike and I, and I think Mark, Mark and I and, and uh, others have had this conversation for years about everywhere you go in Ephesians, there's, there's like a, there's, a, there's this chain. Let me, let me illustrate. If you want to open your Bibles back to Ephesians 1 real quick, we have this, um, this long sentence in chapter three verses, uh, chapter one, verses three through 14. But in verse 15 is the next paragraph. It's the, like the third paragraph of the book. Paul says, for this reason, in my New American Standard, for this reason. Well, what, for what reason? For that whole long sentence that he just said. 
in 115. And if you keep going uh, and you find the next paragraph break, um, the way my Bible says, it's like, check out the chapter. Um, it's actually not a break in, in chapter two. Um, you go down to 2.11. 2.11 says, therefore, remember that formerly, the therefore takes you back to what he was just talking about. On the basis of this thing, let me summarize all that and say, that is the reason why this. And so it's, it grabs up all that context and brings it forward. And he keeps doing that. And you can't find, uh, you can't catch a breath. You can't find a place that doesn't do this. Verse uh, one of chapter three, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, uh, for the sake of you Gentiles, for this reason. And then in verse uh, 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father. And you have to keep going back and grabbing the context. And now in chapter four, verse one, he says, therefore. <laughs> Therefore, I know there is depth in Ephesians that we're not used to sinking to. What if we got used to it? What if we became the kind of Christians that thought like Paul thinks? Therefore, I encourage you, I, the prisoner of the Lord, your Bible might say, I implore you. The word encourage, the main verb in the sentence in verse one is parakaleo. It just means to come alongside in its origin. And it's Paul's most common word for ministry, what he does toward other believers. But it's also what God, the Holy Spirit would do, said Jesus, he would send a paraclete. The paraclete is the parakletos, the one that parakleto, he comes alongside. And it, it, it means to encourage is probably the best word. Some have translated it comfort, the comforter, the encourager. Uh, um, the, the paraclete also has a technical sense in, in the old um, Greek culture uh, of, a, of a trainer, of a, of a, a tutor. And, and these things are all kind of floating around the idea of Paul bringing in encouragement or an exhortation. You could strengthen that with, I implore you, but I think that's a little too strong. Paul is saying, this is the agenda. And I, your brother in Christ, want to encourage you to get with the program. That's what Parakaleo is saying. Paul is grabbing you by the shoulder and saying, let's go. Let's do it. So let's do it. I encourage you, I, the prisoner in the Lord, to walk. Now, it's funny to me. It's a little bit ironic that Paul is in chains and he's telling them to walk. He's stationary. They're mobile. But the illustration of walking just means your mode of life. To, to peripateo, to walk worthily of the calling by which you were called. This takes you back to your first encounter with the gospel that was effective in you receiving eternal life. You might have been like me and heard the gospel an unknown number of times before you understood it and said, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my savior. That is the consequence of the calling that he's talking about. He's not talking about your vocation to, um, to a spiritual gift. Like you, I was called to preach or I was called to teach. Or what. He's not talking about that. He's talking about you were called into the family by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that is a supernatural event that is the grace of God. But he takes you back to that moment when he says, walk worthy of that calling. What I would paraphrase that to mean theologically is, you who are saved by grace through faith need to act like it. We need to walk 
worthy of our so great salvation. And this is phase two. Phase one is that you have been declared righteous. You have been given eternal life. You've been given the new birth. You've given all that God did when you first trusted in Christ, including the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. All these things God did when you first trusted in Christ and you take that truth of now you are clothed in the righteousness of God by his imputation, not your good works, but but his grace has declared you righteous by that calling. Now walk worthy of it. Paul is talking not to unbelievers that need to step it up to walk like Christians. He's talking to Christians who need to put aside the old life and walk in newness of life. This is his exhortation. Walk worthy of the calling by which you were called. This is the worthy walk and let's specify it. With all humility and meekness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. My translation sounds a lot like the New American Standard. We have very similar translation methods <laughs> and I'm always looking at it. I'm looking at all the English translations actually to see how they've done it because they're, they're really commentaries on the Greek text. How may we summarize the worthy walk? How can you summarize with Paul the worthy walk? And this is a, this is a gut check. This is a Christian life. Look in the mirror of the word and see where you stack up kind of thing. You're at the ride. Are you at least this tall to get on this ride? That's that we're, we're measuring our mindset now. Watch what he says. I encourage you and I, the prisoner in the Lord, to walk worthily of the calling with which you were called with all humility and meekness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Well, the first piece, humility and meekness. Meekness does not mean weakness. It means, an, it's a synonym for, for uh, humility. It's an expression of humility in how you treat others. You could also translate this word gentleness. But the idea is that you're humble of heart and gentle of hands. That you're the kind of person that is inside out, humble as we've seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is humility? What is biblical humility? It is not asceticism. It is not self-abnegation. I got all kinds of great words. It's not saying I'm dirt or I'm worthless or I'm nothing or I'm just a dirty sinner. You are not your sin. You are a sinner saved by grace, but you are not your sin. What we say is what God says. We say, I am nothing more or less than what God says I am. Image bearer, made in God's image for his purposes. Born in sin, broken image. The image has been corrupted. Saved by grace through faith. I'm what God says I am. For his purposes, with a tendency at times to think it's about me and a constant need for correction and repentance to say, no, it's about him. Empowered by the spirit for the life that he's given me to live. That's Christian humility. It is, it is nothing less than Jesus Christ in Gethsemane saying, not as I will, but Father, let your will be done. That's Christian humility. Just say what God says. I'd rather have your way than my way. God changed my way to, what, to be what your way is. Help me want what you want. Christian humility, all right? With humility and gentleness, with long suffering. That means patience. These are, the long suffering is listed in Ephesians or Galatians 5 as the fruit of the spirit. With humility and meekness, with long suffering, these are all aspects of attitude. It's the inner person. This is the inner person. 
If you are growing in your capacity to not give in to your tendency to get angry, if you're, if you're growing in that, congratulations, God is getting a hold of you. Wonderful. That's called spiritual growth. That's part of a manifestation of spiritual growth, but this is the summary walk. Humility, gentleness, and long-suffering. I think that arrogance, the thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, is the root problem that we are all struggling against in the expression of our sinful nature. When we walk according to the flesh and therefore a functional death, and we say no to God and yes to what I feel like in my flesh and my sinfulness, this is all from that root. I hope you understand where I'm coming from. That root of arrogance, of thinking. And here's how it works. God is God and I am not, but I can't see him. And I have certain feelings about what I'd rather have. And arrogantly, I will ignore him and what he said and say, not thy will, but my will be done. That's just human arrogance. And it's every time we commit a personal sin, we're doing it. Every time we say no to God and yes to sin nature, we're doing that. It's arrogance. All right. It's attitude is the beginning. But then look what he says. Bearing with one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. This is obviously action. What, what will a humble and meek and gentle and a long-suffering attitude deliver? I'm going to bear along with you. We're going to actually care about each other. And we're going to forgive before there's ever been an offense. We're not going to count a wrong suffered. Well, that's getting kind of crazy now, pastor. This is a crazy group. The closer any of you are to the other, the more likely you've hurt each other. Why? Why is it like that? Because compared to God, well, this isn't a really good comparison because infinitely other different higher than us, but compared to God, think of yourself like a little baby in a playpen. We're all little preschoolers. You ever seen preschoolers bounce off of each other? He took my crayon, so I hit him. And you want to get down there with the preschoolers and say, okay, okay, okay. So he took your crayon, uh-huh, and you hit him, uh-huh. Is that proportional response? And the, the kindergarten's like, I wanted my crayon. And, and that's, that's really, we're little babies, and we hurt each other. And now I know that you're, some of you are like, yeah, these people are babies, but I'm not. And, and I mean, you too. Compared to God, we're all little playpen monsters. And all that goes on in the playpen, I mean, I don't recommend it. Like leaving kids, little, little babies, little toddlers in a playpen. That's just, that's, y'all with little kids know you never do such a thing. Very dangerous. I mean, who knows what, I mean, you're going to have wads of hair yanked out of heads. You're going to have all kinds of horrible things happen. But they don't know what they're doing. They're just little babies. Now you are responsible persons, but you really um, have a, an ignorance of your weaknesses. You know how I know that? Jesus taught me that. Jesus taught me that somehow when there is a plank sticking out of my eye, I will somehow make myself unaware of the plank. So I mean, you're a baby in a playpen. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know that you're swinging your plank. And you don't even know you have it. And you're like, he's got a, he's got a speck. And you've got this giant plank sticking in it. I'm preaching Matthew 7 alongside here because Paul's an apostle of Jesus. We don't know 
what we've done. We don't know that we've stepped on the other person. We don't know that we've hurt them. And the other person doesn't know that we don't know. What they know is they must know. And, and I'm saying that that's this is one example of how these kinds of relationships happen. We impute motives that, that aren't necessarily there. We falsely negatively interpret people's intentions. Sometimes they are there and secretly deep down inside, they were trying to, to knock you down with their telephone pole. But my point is, the more you look at you and the others and we try to figure this sociology of the playpen out, the more you're just going to spend hopeless and useless libraries of human viewpoint. If we'll look away from the playpen and ourselves to our Lord Jesus Christ and walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called, we'll start treating each other like we should. You start to become mature. You start to become long-suffering. You start to become diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This is one of my favorite words in Greek, spude, spudazo, diligent. My Bible uh, uh, will say in 2 Timothy 2, be diligent or study to show thyself approved unto God. That's spudazo. It means to be diligent, to make it a priority, make every effort. We don't do that. We think of it as a secondary thing. We think for some reason, maybe it's cultural. We think that it's when, when I tell you, you need to take special pains to stay together. We start thinking, I'm hearing my kindergarten teacher say, let's play nice and share our toys. And I'm not saying that. We're, we're saying what the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching us concerning the witness of the gospel. And if it's just me and you, if it's just horizontal, if it's just how you get along with each other, if that's all there is and how I feel about her and how she feels about me and all that, if that's all there is to what we're talking about, of course, it's stupid. It's the kindergarten teacher just trying to get through the day without having to go to the hospital. But if you bring God into this and his mission and the gospel witness and the transformation of our hearts to be like the character of Jesus Christ, so we love like he loves and we want what he wants toward one another, despite our horrible sinfulness and failures, then, oh, it's about the mission. And you people need to be on duty. We people need to be on duty. We need to be on mission. We've got a responsibility and that's taking on the character of Christ by taking on the word of God. So this is your summary of the Christian worthy walk. And I never understood people that can't figure out obeying Jesus because they're hung up on grace. You are by God's grace enabled through the power of the Holy Spirit to obey what God has commanded you. And you could never do these things without the spirit of God working in you. All right. We move from the summary to the topic of unity. Paul will, will take a topic and end the, the discussion of the topic, the summary of the worthy walk by introducing a new concept. Here he's got unity, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now let's talk about unity. And so the unity of the body of Christ is Paul's topic in verses four through six, the unity of the body of Christ. And this is a topic that for some reason we don't emphasize probably as much as we should because we have doctrinal differences. Because, I mean, we just read Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. I have dogmatic convictions about that. I'm sure that as much nuance as there is in that passage, there's gonna be a lot of divergence of views with other Christians that say the Bible is God's word. They're wrong. I mean, you know, but 
if it's just that we all think the exact same thing about every doctrinal statement, then you're never going to have this unity. It has to do with identity as the person in Christ. And do I recognize that? Do I insist on that? Again and again, I can show you Paul will make that the issue. Yes, we need to be doctrinally aligned. Paul is teaching such great and wonderful theology. But we also need to remember this concept of unity is central to this expression of the love of Jesus Christ for which Paul prayed in chapter 3. He says, one body, unity. Come on. There. This word here, henoteta, henoteta means oneness or unity. Heno. This is the Greek, hen, heno. That's where you, that's one in Greek. Now watch this. He takes that thought of oneness. And then in verse four, he says, hen. And I put it in blue up here. One, one, feminine one. One, one, feminine one, one. It's all the same particle that means one, one body, one spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all as for us. Now, people have taken this passage and made it mean things that it cannot mean. There are two baptisms that the church en engages in. They've taken this passage and said, no, it's only one baptism. Is he talking about within the same community, different things? No, he's saying that there's one communal thing that we all share in. And the baptism of the spirit, if you have to pick one of the two, it's that one. When you first believe the baptism of the spirit, where you're united to Jesus Christ forever. That defines what the church is. And the water is a symbol of that. I'm convinced the water portrays in a physical manifestation what the Holy Spirit has already accomplished. This is why I'm so absolutely dogma dogmatically opposed to baptismal regeneration, the idea that you're saved by the water. Well, if we have one Lord, some Unitarians have said, well, that means that you can't have um, deity in the Spirit and the Son because the deity of, of the Father. And then the son can't be because only one Lord. The Lord is one God in three persons. The Lord, Kurios, Yahweh, one God in three persons. You know, and, and when he is your God, your Lord, and the Lord Jesus is God, you found the one God. That's, so it, in other words, this passage has been pressed into a mold in some theological efforts that it must not, it doesn't bear. And in context, you can see it doesn't work that way. He's talking about the oneness that we share. What will we emphasize about each other? What will we emphasize about each other? Look at it. One body. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then whether I like your personality or not, whether I think you have the necessary rosy glow to really be one of those sweet church people, right? Oh, that person really acts like church people. I hate that. I hate, I hate that. I have to ask God, is my hatred appropriate? Or I don't hate them. I just hate that. I hate fake. I hate fake and I hate, I hate the insistence on shallow when the Bible is deep. I hate it. It's also boring. I'm bored by it. And so that, those go together, right? So that's just my, that's my limitations. 
I, I struggle with the, with the fake and the, and the shallow. Except where I'm fake and shallow, and then I don't look at that. But anyway, the one body, one spirit, this is the important stuff about each other. You, whether you and I agree on every topic, whether you and I like each other, whether you and I enjoy the same sports, whatever, the, where we like to hang out together, we need to acknowledge this about each other. This is a real basis for relationship. This is a real basis for unity. We're in the same body. The Holy Spirit has united us to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have the same salvation, one hope of your calling. We have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Now, the faith here, I believe, is the body of truth, the body of truth. And this is the most controversial of all the controversial things that are listed here, the thing we divide over. What is the faith? You know what it is? It isn't the Westminster Confession of Faith. It isn't any of the Baptist confessions of faith. It isn't any of the creeds. That's not the faith. It's fine. We have doctrinal summary. We have a doctrinal statement that we've put forth. That's not the faith. That's our best shot at a summary of the faith. There's a big difference. The faith is the body of truth that's been deposited through the apostles and prophets. It's the Old and New Testaments. It's the revelation of God with the authoritative imprimatur of his handiwork. It's the spirit through the apostles and prophets. That's what the faith is. And that's, I'm being controversial, I know, but that's what we believe. And so if God said it, we trust him. One baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, who's the Lord here? The one Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. One God and father of all one spirit. It is Trinitarian. All right. There's a lot of things we could say, but we've said we're going to uh, cruise through here. But I just want to emphasize Paul's point is there are metaphysical realities about you that are way different than the, your feelings about each other's personalities. Let's sink down a little bit and say, what's true about this other person? This is why we'll never sue another Christian. We'll go to first Corinthians six and say, nope, we're not going to go to, to the unbelievers for, for judgment. We're going to find wise among us and arbitrate between each other. You could read about that in 1 Corinthians 6. And Paul's distinction is, are they in the same body? Are these believers? Okay. What, what, I mean, but can, can you imagine? They, they stole from me. They, Paul says, hey, it's better to be defrauded than to deny the gospel. This is not about we get along or we hang out. This is about metaphysical truth that you can say is true about the other person. And that is a solid basis for seeing the family. Now we have a bunch of kids. We're training them not to kill each other, not to hit each other, not to hurt each other, not to bite and devour each other, lest they be consumed, as Paul says in Galatians. Boy, I, I first read that and didn't have any kids, and now I have kids, and like I get it. Do not bite and, and devour each other, lest you be consumed by one another. If you bite, you're going to get bit. I mean, obviously, <laughs> so easy. All right. <laughs> We're training the little kids, right? We bring them back to who is this person? We have to, they have to think this through. They took my crayon. Needs to be replaced with, that is my dad's son. And I am gonna honor my father and therefore I'm gonna not destroy his son. It's, it's a rationale, isn't it? That's my dad's son. And I tell that to all my sons. Why are you hurting my son? That, and they, when, you, when, you, when you put it that way, they're like, oh. Now it's hard for you to imagine. I've got a bunch of boys, a bunch of boys. And um, so this rationale is something that we say a lot. 
Why are you hurting my son? I'm telling my son this. And he's like, oh, that's kind of an oxymoron. I'm your son hurting your son. Well, that's stupid. When I think of, when I bring dad into the picture, human illustration, let's expand it to the infinite creator. It's your dad's kids. Do you love your dad? Then you need to take on his attitude about his kids. Now in Joseph's family, you know, the brothers that hated him, wanted to kill him, compromise, let's just sell him into slavery to pagans. Good luck. In Joseph's family, he had a little bit harder thing to work with because his dad didn't really love his sons equally. He didn't love his sons the same. He loved Joseph more than the others and they hated him for it. But see, your dad isn't like Jacob that way. He's not like Jacob that way. Your dad loves you with his love and his love can't be measured. So when you think of each other, you think of each other that way. I love preaching the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, it is so easy not to think about the spiritual things, to not think about God, to not keep our minds, as we read in Colossians 3, fixed on uh, Christ, the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. It's so easy to lose track of the spiritual truths that we believe, the one faith, the one Lord, one baptism. We're, we lose track of our identity in Christ, and we think about, he took my crayon. Right? And that this is the switch. You have to go back to thinking and you bring God into the discussion. Say, what does he want? And don't stop. Well, he doesn't want me to do that. Think through why. Who am I talking about? Who are these people in Christ? And so what is the responsibility? And then it takes on um, a much bigger perspective. And I think that that perspective is big enough in God's grace to incorporate, compass all the hurt that you encounter at the hands of fellow Christians who step on you or worse in the playpen. That perspective that brings God to bear, we think of him and what he wants on behalf of the other. All right, diversity of gifts for growth and unity is verses seven through 13. Finally, I get to talk about pastors and teachers. Ephesians four verses seven through 13 takes you from the idea of the preservation of unity because of our shared identity in Christ. And then it tells you about your diversity for the benefit of unity. And this is the truth. Every individual Christian has an individual Christian life. And by God's design, your spiritual life and relationship with God is designed to improve and benefit the rest of those around you, their spiritual lives. It is a unity that is enhanced truly by the individuality of the spiritual gifts and your spiritual life. And so here's, here's what happens. I just said a very complicated thing and I'm not speaking out of, uh, you know, our strength is in our diversity kind of stuff. I'm not talking about made up satanic um, alternatives to the Bible. I'm talking about God's design of oneness despite the individuality that each of us bring. There is to be a oneness that is by God's grace and his power enhanced by your individual walk. It is the one and the many, and it is God's design in the church, the one and the many. It is not just the many. That's called, I call it, community override, where it's only, the, whole, the only place the Holy Spirit shows up is when we're together. No, that's really, really bad, popular, but bad New Testament theology today. And it isn't the just me, an individual protein functioning 
in my spiritual life. No, you're a protein in a cell with interface with all the other proteins and the cell works because we all are being, doing our individual work. So we're going to talk about diversity of gifts for growth and unity. In verse 7, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Ephesians 4, 7 tells you that you have a spiritual gift from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the theology of verse 7. If you only got one thing today and you're a believer in Jesus and you're like, I don't he's putting it all together like with the text. I do that a lot. But if I try to anyway, it, if you only get one thing, the theology of spiritual gifts is most explicitly stated here. You have a spiritual gift. The measure is according to Christ's gift. That means that it's really awesome. You have one. I don't know what it is. That's part of his design. You were born and nobody knew who you were going to marry, unless you're in a situation with arranged marriages, you know, but didn't know who you're going to end up with. When you're born, I mean, probably going to get married. Most people do. You were born with um, a certain genetic uh, expectation for how your face was going to look when you grew up. And by the way, everybody's, you're doing great. You were born with a hair color. Your hair was going to be a certain color, part of your genetic code. You were born again with a spiritual gift and it's going to maximally express as you maximally grow. It's part of your genetics, your spiritual genetics. As you grow up spiritually, you grow into the expression of your giftedness. And so, because it's part of what you are, who you are in God's design in the new creation, he's going to say he gave you as a gift. Your spiritual gift in verse seven makes you a gift in verse 11. I'll say it again. Your spiritual gift in verse seven makes you a gift. Jesus gives his church in verse 11. And it is that complicated. And I have friends that know better, I guess, and, and they think they do, that will say that that's not that you're being too complicated. That's exactly as deep as Paul is in Ephesians chapter four. But verse seven says you have a spiritual gift. He doesn't say what it is. I am convinced that it is not a revelatory gift. I think the revelatory gifts have ceased. My, my ax to grind is not just with glossolalia, speaking in tongues, because that was a speaking known foreign languages for the sign for Israel in the first century. That's not my primary problem. My primary problem is the closing of the canon of scripture by the apostle John, so that revelation is in the apostles. Apostles have passed on, but their word is still with us. And so functionally, what my view of cessationism does is it makes me focus on the Bible and insist on the sufficiency of scripture. That's the functional effect of my view of cessationism. And I think that that's really why it's important. And if you don't know what I mean by cessationism, I mean that the miraculous things of the first century, I think have passed on because they did their job. They testified to the apostles message. That's my belief. This is why I am teaching what the apostles say. And I don't think I've got to do something else. There's not like a third or fourth part of the service where we, we break out the healers or something. Down the street, there's a church where they have power. They say they do. I saw a video of a church down the road where they, in one service, let the Holy Spirit loose, not once, but twice. They had the power to release the Holy Spirit. They said, we're going to, everybody sit tight. We're going to loose the Holy Spirit in a minute. And I thought, let the Kraken, let, let, let slip the dogs. Of war. I mean, we're going to let the Holy Spirit out of his cage. Ghostbusters or something. I mean, that was an amazing power that they don't have that they say they have. But anyway, 
You're all wondering what church is that? I'm not telling. <laughs> if any from that church is watching, they know who they are, and um, they're probably mad for me saying it that way. But that's what. But they said it. We're going to let the Holy Spirit loose, and they let him loose twice. And the weirdest thing about it was the people they brought up to heal didn't get healed. Do you know why they didn't get healed? Come on, y'all know. They didn't have enough faith. It was their fault. Somebody give me a rim shot. I mean, come on, this is horrible. Okay, so, but the spiritual gifts that we have, (laughs) the spiritual gifts that we have are, as Paul is gonna say, for the building up of the body of Christ. That's what they're for. And you have one. And if you're not growing and maturing and using your gift, you are robbing, okay, the body of its nourishment. You're robbing the body of its function. And that's, don't, don't feel guilty about it. Just maybe we need to make some changes. We all, I mean, we're always needing to make changes. All right, verse seven says, we've all been given a gift. And then we have a digression from Psalm 68. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And this is probably the rabbinic uh, recension translation of this verse in Psalm 68. And we're not gonna get into the discussion there, but um, the sense of what is in the Hebrew text is there, but it says he received gifts from men, but those gifts that were captives, he gave. And that's what he's saying. But anyway, he gave gifts as men. We'll take it in the Greek, as he says. And now we have this digression. My New American Standard puts it in uh, uh, parentheses, which is very helpful because it is. It's, a, it's an anacoluthan. And he says, now this expression, let me, let me do a little exegesis for you. This idea of he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended? So the one who, and it should be the one who had descended. So the one who ascended and went up to the Father is also the one who before had descended into the lower parts of the earth. Three views of the lower parts of the earth. I'm not gonna really get into this very much, but I'll just say it means either he came to earth in the incarnation so that after paying for our sins, he ascended, okay? Probably the strongest view contextually. But there's other stuff in other places in the Bible that say he descended into Hades, into the the, um, Abraham's bosom and led captivity captive. So he went down into the abode of the dead to get the souls of the dead and take them to the father. That's the traditional view. And then um, the other one is, I forget, it's those, those are the two main views. <laughs> the third one is, is more nuanced and it's interesting, but I don't think it's very powerful. And um, to, today I think it's that he came to earth in the incarnation. But when I read First Peter and Second Peter, which are the more explicit passages about the descent of Jesus into the lake, not, I'm sorry, to the, into Hades to um, preach to the spirits in, in prison. I think um, this sounds like that too. So it's, uh, to me, it's not a very important exegetical point because the doctrine isn't built in verse nine, it's built in first and second Peter. Nevertheless, he who descended is himself also, he ascended up far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. So he's taking the occasion to talk about Jesus and glorify him yet again. He's the one, he's the focus, and he always has been in all of what Paul writes. And by the way, this series is the Christian life of Paul. Paul's a Christian. That's the big insight about Paul. He's, he's coming from Christ and he's focusing on Christ and he is preaching Christ. And we're not Pauline, we're Christians and therefore we listen to Paul. All right. So he gave gifts to men, but what I wanted you to see as we summarize is that he, then he says in verse 11, and he gave. It's the same verb. Same tense, okay? Parentheses closed. We're talking about he gave gifts, okay? You've been given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
He gave gifts to men and he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. My Bible in New American Standard says he gave some as apostles and some as, it doesn't say that. They're just trying to, to, to paraphrase sort of the sense. The gifts that he gave in verse eight and verse 11 are the people who are gifted with the ability to do the things described. Now that's not that complicated, but I'll say it again. The gifts that Paul is talking about are the people that are spiritually gifted with the, with the ability that we would call a spiritual gift. Why would I conclude such a thing? Because you have two other spiritual gifts lists. You know where they are? Where else are spiritual gifts in the Bible? Come on, people. Come on, Christians. Come on, theologians. First Corinthians chapters 12, 13, 14. Excellent. With love as the focus, because love is the point. The, your spiritual giftedness is your ability to love better. The special capacity you have to love the body. Think about that. Now, that's 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Where else? Thank you. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 and following. Spiritual gift list in Romans 12, 9 and following. Guess what you find in Romans 12, 9 and following. You find the spiritual gift of prophecy. Spiritual gift of teaching. Same as these. Prophet. Pastor and teacher. See, there's an overlap in the lists. These are the people in verse 11. They are gifted with the abilities of Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So you do have spiritual gifts lists. This is a list of people who are gifted. And so there is more to the topic than just saying, oh, well, this is one of the gift lists. The point that Paul is making is that the people with their ability are a gift Jesus has given to his body. You are a gift to the body of Christ. And he emphasizes here the communicators, he emphasizes the communication gifts beginning with revelation. The apostles and prophets are the revealer, the people that given the special revelation from God. That's in the early church and today, and, and they, are, they had evangelists and the others today. And today we have evangelists still, and I believe pastors and teachers. And I, I think pastor and teacher is a spiritual gift. I think the person that has it becomes a gift. I think whatever your gift is, you become that and you become a gift. You are a gift that Jesus has given his church. And I think it's just that complicated. It's not that complicated, but it's, it's as complicated as we just said. My favorite is the guy that says, well, I'm, I'm not really teaching, but I'm shepherding. So shepherd is the English for poimen, which is the Greek for pastor, which is the Latin for shepherd. <laughs> it just means shepherd. Pastors is shepherd. Shepherds and teachers. It's uh, likely that all shepherds are teachers, but not all teachers are shepherds. I think that's probably the best summary. Now, how did Jesus say to be a shepherd to the apostle Peter in John 21? Feed my sheep. Said them twice. Shepherd my sheep in the middle, but feed them, shepherd them, feed them. Shepherds feed. What do they feed the word? They teach. I recently saw a really great movie from, I think somewhere like 1980, 1981, starring Jack Lemmon called uh, Mass Appeal. <laughs> Have y'all seen that? You wouldn't. It's Roman Catholic. But you would because it's really good. It's a great sort of real serious movie with a great point. 
I'm in good company. Um, Alan Ross referenced it in the conference I was recently at. Mass appeal. It's an interesting thing where the, um, the priests are, they're trying to figure out how to be priests. You have the old guy that's popular and he's used to telling people what they want to hear. And the young seminarian who's idealistic and trying to be biblical, trying to be theologically grounded, I guess, to mystic, whatever, um, faithful to what he's being taught in, in the Bible and seminary. And he's coming face to face with the way the church is working, what works, where the pastor's telling people what they want to hear versus what they need. It's a great presentation of that dynamic because the old popular pastor is just, he's just a shyster. He's just telling the people what they want to hear. And the young idealistic guy, everyone hates him because he tells them what they don't want to hear, but they need to hear. He didn't know how to do it. And he's learning. And it makes me think that's a great illustration in the Roman Catholic context, of course, but it's a great illustration of this problem of the pastors that won't feed their flocks. That is the reason we're in the trouble that we're in as a people. I had a friend tell me um, that uh, one of the distinguished graduates of Dallas Seminary the last 10 years, pastor of a big church, just cannot preach enough about Black Lives Matter. He can't help but become the social justice warrior that Dallas needs. Dallas, the, the city. That, that this has caught fire throughout the evangelical world. That, that we have to embrace this humanistic and therefore satanic lie. Not that Black Lives Matter, but that this organization with its roots in Marxism and sexual perversion as a, as a, as a, as a, as a moral norm um, needs to characterize our whole country. If black lives matter, then that organization has to be rejected if they matter. And they do because God and eternal life matters and God's image matters and all people are in God's image. The problem we have is we haven't thought through and we haven't got a sense of the depth of the word and we don't want it. We don't feel like it and it's countercultural and it's not wanted. And for me to say that you have a spiritual gift and that by giving you that gift, you become a gift to the church. Oh, that's just too complicated. I, I, I can't, I can't get with that thought, but that's exactly what Paul's saying here. Now you, the happy few, we band of brothers who say, no, we're going to go where, where God's word takes us and we're going to be what he makes of us, no matter what the culture around us says. And we're going to love them anyway, though they hate us for saying it's not about that, it's about God. We're going to take this thought and we're going to be challenged. I've been given a grace gift from God that makes me valuable in a way no one else is because it's an individual work that he's given me to do. He's given you to do. I'm gonna take that truth. I'm gonna praise God for it. Thank you for the grace to be part of your work. Thank you for the special enablement that you've encoded in my spiritual DNA for me to grow into. Please help me grow so I can express the character of Jesus Christ and his love for your body, for this body of Christ. 
Let me take this seriously and not walk away. Please do not walk away double-minded and forget what the word of God said about you. Let's close with what he says about the reason for these gifts. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Why do we have these communicators? And I will extend that to any spiritual gift. He's, he's using the communicators because this is sort of the, the, the food stop where all the growth happens. You all minister to me all the time. We minister to each other all the time. Inasmuch as this is a functioning local expression of the body of Christ, of course, our spiritual gifts are functioning and blessing one another in the love of Jesus Christ. He says, he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That is one of the biggest mouthfuls in the Bible. I know you've all read through it, and I just read through it. We're not going to be done with our spiritual giftedness or our growth into its expression or the use of it with each other for each other's benefit. We're not going to be done until the Lord Jesus is done building his church. When are you done with the cells in your body? Right? Well, when the body's done living. And at that point, we're talking about uh, a transition to eternal, the eternal state. Christ's gifts, we'll talk about that next time. Once again, I've gotten halfway through my notes. <laughs> I'll never drive, uh, I'll never do a patent and drive past my notes. Drive past my maps. I'll always be, have a lot left in reserve. Y'all join me uh, if you want tomorrow, three to six. If you want to do part of the Arete thing, let me know you're coming so we can plan. And um, it's not a major, I don't need a much, it's not a major preparation, but I just like to know. And um, we'll include you in the, uh, the little thing where we're going to share with the whole Arete family, people in Washington state, people in Texas, people across the country, Tennessee. And um, it's going to be a good time. Let's pray for it. Father, we thank you for uh, your grace to us in sharing this gift, this giftedness that makes us useful in the Lord Jesus and his work. Thank you for the works that you prepared beforehand that we would walk in. Thank you for the clarity we have when we think about the victory lap of your son giving us spiritual gifts that make us a gift to the church for its growth, for its development. Don't let us take it for granted, Father. Let us be serious about the expression of your grace. Father, we love everyone. We're loving our enemies, blessing those who persecute us. We're concerned for our nation, for all the people that you're concerned for, Father. But uh, here, you've taught us that there needs to be this communion, this sweet fellowship based on your truth that is attractive attractive to us as participants, attractive to outsiders who would become participants. Father, part of that attractiveness is the awesome capabilities represented in this room. The wonderful grace that you've shed into all of our lives that makes us, by your son's giving, in his victory lap, a gift to his body. Don't let us take it for granted. Father, let us honor one another. Let us honor you in this grace and live it.
for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.